ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. We're live, we're here, and we've got a great show for you today. As a matter of fact, this is the best Second Opinion ever. ever. And our old producer's visiting, Tony. If you want to participate, you can on the phone, on the web, and on Twitter. As usual, we're covering all kinds of fascinating medical topics. Fascinating. And today, we're discussing numbers and how they rule your world. They do. That's the title of a new book authored by statistician Kaiser Fung. He has some interesting thoughts on how statistics will move to the forefront of medicine as we embrace EMRs and health informatics systems. If you've got a question for Mr. Fung, now is your chance to call in or email. Our number is 888-MD1-REACH, that's 888-631-7322, and our email, sol at reachmd.com. I'm sure Kaiser liked how you called our numbers out there. So what else is on our minds today? How about salaries, more numbers? A new study shows that specialist nurses now fetch higher base salaries than family physicians. What does this tell us of anything about the future of primary care practice? And we'll have a look at the current ReachMD poll. 80% of physicians will be trading in their cell phones for smartphones. In this week's poll, we ask, what smart features appeal to you most? My phone's already smarter than me. I know that. And we'd be behind the times if we didn't spend a few minutes covering the newest trend in social media. Doctors tweeting from the operating room. What's up with that and who's holding the retractors? All this and a few other surprises on this week's Second Opinion Live. Our number again, 888-MD1-REACH. Give us a call. All right, first up, our regular feature, Curious Headlines. And today, listen hard to this, and we have one that stopped us dead in our tracks. A British soldier blinded by a rocket-propelled grenade while serving in Iraq is the first patient to trial a new technology that enables him to literally see with his tongue. <laughs> Reporters say that he can now read words, make out shapes, and even walk without a guide dog. Can He can read my script here. He can definitely read your script. Everybody could read your script. That's right. It's a device called BrainPort, and here's the setup. A tiny video camera is attached to a pair of sunglasses, which are linked to a plastic lollipop, and that's placed on the tongue. The images then get converted into electrical pulses that apparently tingle the tongue at varying strengths across the white to black spectrum. If that isn't complicated, <laughs> you're very, very smart. And these tingles can be interpreted to uh, help visualize one's surroundings. What flavor is that lollipop? Delicious. The soldier says it's like licking a 9-volt battery, like a pins needle sensation. Have you ever licked a 9-volt battery? I have not. I have, and I'm it tingles. Sure have. I tried one, yes. <laughs> the patient interprets the black and white images as lines and shapes, so it's sort of a two-dimensional image on the tongue. And he can pick up objects, and he can navigate himself, mm -hmm. but he is not willing to give up his trusty guide dog. Naturally. He says, there's no way I'm getting rid of my guide dog, but this is another mobility device. It's not the be-all and end-all of my disability, says, but it's an amazing concept. I think that's fascinating. Yeah, so it's not like literally seeing, but it allows him to form a mental impression of what he's seeing based on what he's feeling To get objects, so you don't tongue. walk into the wall. I think yeah. that's... It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. All right, why don't we shift gears to an emerging trend in social media, surgeons tweeting or twittering from the operating room. Now, here's a recent sample from Henry Ford Hospital where they've been tweeting roughly once a month from different departments. During a robotic partial nephrectomy, the chief resident tweeted what amounted to a play-by-play -play to give updates about the procedure. Now, the hospital announced the case ahead of time, and anyone could follow along and comment. 
And apparently next on the Twitter agenda is an awake craniotomy by the neurosurgical staff. Okay, this is too much for me. I'm sorry. All right. Why isn't the chief resident participating in the surgery? You know, you have chief residents, other staff surgeons diverting attention away from the hands-on work to do their play-by-plays. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to drive and text. You're not even supposed to drive and be on the phone. <laughs> so this guy's participating in surgery, and he's, he's tweeting, and he's paying attention to his cell phone. Come on. Yeah. You know? Well, it's possible that they might be relaying instructions and giving a sort of a checklist, a protocol of what they're doing, at which point someone else is actually relaying the information. How do you sterilize your iPhone, you know, unless it's in a little plastic bag or something? <laughs> well, I'm guessing that they don't keep it within the operating field, Michael. They probably don't get it anywhere close. Hey, call me a Luddite, call me old-fashioned, call me <laughs> one of the old guard. But I really, when I go into surgery, I want my surgeon operating. I don't want him on Facebook. Fair enough, fair enough. But you have to admit they can use the Twitter in this way to help educate others on managing, let's say, a complex case with sophisticated equipment, in, oh. as in this case. Okay, I'll be devil's advocate again. I don't learn in tweets. I don't learn in 26 paragraphs or words it's or whatever. It's the bold font method. That's the only way to learn medicine. <laughs> I know. I, I would learn it by reading a paragraph, but not by looking at those things and not by looking at online things. If you want me to learn the surgery, I'll come in and look at it. You know, but I don't learn anything on Twitter. I really don't. I don't follow anybody, and I'm not on Facebook. All right. Well, for those who do learn that way, and I can't say that I'm one of them either, there is an archive of the tweets available and videos which apparently get posted on I am YouTube. Gla- I am glad that I am 61 and I only have 35 more years to practice because <laughs> I don't want to participate in tweeting. All right. All right. On to the ReachMD poll. With this week's topic, smartphones and physicians. Uh, There we go again, smartphones, dumb doctors. More and more doctors are trading in their pagers for smartphones. Right now, almost 65% of all U.S. doctors own these devices, and that number is predicted to rise to about 81% by 2012. Boy, talk about our guests. All we're talking about is numbers. It's all about numbers. It's all about organization convenience and efficiency in practice these days to push the trend. And I use my smartphone to time the show here. I'm sure you do. So for those of us out there still scratching our heads in on this one as the pages go off next to our Apple 2Gs, here are some common smartphone applications on top of paging. There's reference guides through web surfing or apps like Hippocrates, access to patient data, images and lab results. You can even GPS track yourself to allow your hospital to know where you're at if needed. That's about the most big brother thing I've yeah, ever heard. Yeah, I do but... not want my hospital to know where I'm at. <laughs> Believe me. It's some, <laughs> probably. All right. What have you got over there? What's your phone? A BlackBerry? It is a BlackBerry. All right. You're number one. BlackBerry still leads with the most number of phones out there, but my iPhone is moving up fast, and I love my iPhone. Uh, yeah, if we've heard. There are currently more than 1,500 medical apps or medical applications that can be downloaded to smartphones, and let's give some examples. One allows obstetricians to access maternal and fetal data remotely, and another one actually sends EKG images and patient data from ambulances directly to doctors' phones ahead of their arrival to the hospital. Well, How neat is that? Yeah, that is cool. And I have to say, I actually do use mine in the office. As a dermatologist, we have our own pathologist in our own laboratory mm-hmm. in, a, in a group practice, and when I see an interesting lesion these days, and I never used to do this, but now that I have a phone, I'll take a picture of the lesion without any identification and email it immediately to the pathologist, and he gets a slide the next day and puts the two together. I just write on the requisition, this is the picture number one I sent you. And it actually makes a big difference. I would not do this before my smartphone. But there's privacy issues out there that need to be resolved, and we would like to know, if you were to buy a smartphone today, what features would be the most important to you? Share your thoughts with us at reachmd.com slash poll. That's reachmd.com slash poll, where you can vote on this. And don't forget to check out our own ReachMD app on the iPhone and soon to come on the BlackBerry. 
Remember, it's called ReachMD Medical Radio on the iPhone. Yes, I have it on here, and I'm listening to us right now, and we sound great. <laughs> I think we sound pretty this good. This is the best show I've ever heard. <laughs> you called it. All now right. we'd like to welcome our guest for this week, Kaiser Fung, author of the book Numbers Rule Your World, The Hidden Influence of Probability and Statistics on Everything You Do. Kaiser is a statistician and expert on seeing how data provides insights into behavior. He holds statistics, business, and engineering degrees from Cambridge, Harvard, and Princeton. This is one not-so-smart guy. Yeah, not exactly no, digging Cambridge, the Harvard, of the and education Princeton. here. And he's a fellow of the Royal Statistics Society. He joins us to talk about the insights and controversies numbers lend us in healthcare decision-making. Kaiser, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm going to have to try to top that eye on the tongue story. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> hey, listen, numbers rule your world. My wife rules my world. I don't know about numbers. She rules it. But I think it's a great book, and I actually read it. But I want to start kind of broadly here. We're kind of entering this new age. We joke about it all the time here, but new age of, of health informatics. What a formal word. So are numbers going to be ruling us, or is that already the case? Is it creeping in? Talk to us about it. My point of view is that um, the numbers are going to be there no matter what. Um, we can't fight this trend where everyone is tracking every single move of ours. And as um, consumers out there, we really should um, take control of these numbers. And we can start by learning a few general uh, statistical concepts that help us interpret what's out there. We really need to interpret these numbers for ourselves and not let other people, you know, um, tell us what they mean. I agree. So what are some of the pitfalls here? First of all, what do we need to learn? What would be our basic stuff that you would want us to learn? Remember chi-square test or something. <laughs> well, That's all I know. Yeah, yeah not, it's none of that. I'm trying to, uh, you know, for, 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 for this book, I'm trying to come up with the perspective that, you know, the, all that chi-square test and, and novas and all these things that, that they teach us is, you know, pretty much too much for the everyday person. Um, we can start with one of the most basic things, such as, you know, that um, especially in, I think, in, in the medical field, it's constantly true that we're being told, you know, you need to maintain this level of weight or, you know, this is the diet that's right for you. And the strange thing about that is there seems to be only one diet for everyone and only one weight that is good for, you know, let's say for this height, you need that, this weight. Um, the, that's actually not a uh, sophisticated way of looking at it. We should think about um, having many averages instead of one. So, you know, who really cares about the average American diet um, that's recommended if, in fact, you are not the average American? You know, we are all different in our unique ways, and... Um, there should be recommendations that are made for people who are like yourself. Yeah, Matt and I are definitely not the average. We are so far above average. You might call us outliers, actually. (laughs) Standard deviations apart, really. (laughs) But what do you make of this average population data that we often talk about? I mean, you devoted some time in your book to that. It sounds kind of like you're looking at it as trapped thinking, as very restrictive thinking. Right, the average guy. Yeah, I mean, I think in general... Um, that that's a good guide, but most statisticians would take the average as sort of a yardstick, and we are not that interested in where the yardstick is. We're interested in where we stand as in comparison with the yardstick. So, you know, if you take some of the recent, um, you know, let's say the controversy around the memogram guidelines as an example, 
um, you know, oftentimes we're being cited numbers that are really what's the average level of benefit you get um, for, you know, women between, you know, the ages of 40 up to 75. But what that is hiding is that, in fact, the level of benefit is different depending on age group. So it's a lot less for women below 50 and above 65 than for women that are in between 50 and 65. So, you know, it, is, it would actually help all of us if some of these guidelines are, are um, built upon more specific averages as opposed to sort of one average for every, everyone out there. So you think that we need to further stratify yeah. our populations better? What do you make of the recent mammography panel's decisions? I know you had some thoughts on that. You were blogging on that. What were your thoughts on some of their decisions for recommendations? I think for that one, it's, you know, as in somewhat of an outsider looking in, I find the quality of the guideline in terms of presentation to be somewhat poor. Um, I was reading through the official guidelines, and it was very difficult as a quantitative person for me to really extract out the numbers to figure out what's going on. Um, they made a mostly qualitative argument around the fact that um, more screening is going to lead to higher number of false positives, which means overdiagnosis and um, people getting treatment that they don't need and all that. But it would have helped if there were to be more numbers in the piece so that we could actually judge the level of risk. And I, I find that lacking. It's very difficult to, to decide one way or the other. Um, the larger point, though, is actually correct, that in general there's this paradox, which is what I've been writing on my blog, that broad-based screening is typically a bad idea. Before you give us more numbers, hold on. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on Reach MDXM 160. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg alongside Dr. Matt Bernholtz. He's the good looking one. Find us on Twitter at ReachMD or find us by phone, 888 MD1 Reach. That's 888 631 7322. We're talking with statistician and author Kaiser Fung. Fascinating talk about numbers. Okay, let's go on. Is personalized medicine a realistic trend or a pipe dream? Are we going to have no statistics in the future and we're on a one-on-one with our doctor or are we going to still deal with this average population stuff? Because I'll tell you, I can never, ever meet that average weight. If I did, I'd be dead. Right, so personalized medicine is kind of the other extreme, right? So um, you have we're talking about two extremes here. In one extreme, you look at the entire population, look at the average man or the average woman, and you're being told to do as that imaginary person does. Uh, on the other extreme, we are saying that you can go down to the individual and individualize everything. Um, to me, that's also a pipe dream. Um, the, the way that you would do it is somewhere in the middle where you divide people up into relevant subgroups. Um, there was probably a small number of subgroups, and then you have individual recommendations for people within that group. I mean, going down to the individual level is not a good idea because at that level, you are your own sample size. I mean, you basically you're, you have a sample size of one, and you're not learning from other people's experiences at all. And it, in statistics, you know, when things are not certain, just having one sample and trying to generalize from it is generally a very bad idea. There could be a lot of errors. Yeah, but it is all about me after all. 
That's that's what Matt says. Let me tell you, it always has been with that's this right. guy. Kaiser, though, I mean, I think an important distinction we need to make when we talk about something like personalized medicine is that ultimately our goals are to refine treatments in our field and hone them down and down and down so that you have something that's very applicable to an individual patient. But I don't think that would necessarily inflict harm on our ability to collate data and be able to create more and more information that we can use with some medium that you're talking about, something that's not so large as just an average, but to something in between the individual and average population. Yeah, it's, it's got to be, you know, finding the right, what I, what I refer to as in the book, it's, um, you know, there's, there's a, the idea of aggregation in statistics, and you're looking for the right level of aggregation, you know, it's just, it's, that's generally not going to be the entire population, it's not going to be the individual, it's going to be somewhere in the middle. So why don't we change gears here for a second and talk about another, we would mentioned mammogram guidelines. Why don't we talk about PSA screening for a minute? Because I know you had a counterintuitive notion based on some of your writing. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Right. So with the PSA and as, as with many other screenings, um, I think, you know, if we're not thinking a statistical way, you know, even you know, if I don't think a statistical way, it would seem logical to think that the more people we screen, um, the the more benefit we yield from the screening, you know, because, like, why not screen everyone? Um, the, from a statistical perspective, if you look at, at the statistics of any screening test, it turns out that um, targeted screening is always better than um, just broad-based screening. And the, the way to think about it is that um, if it is a screening test, we typically define it such that we are willing to accept a relatively high level of false positives. So, you know, we don't want people to go home with a negative test result thinking that they don't have the disease when they actually have it. So we allow high false positives. Now, if we now start extend, expanding our screening from a high-risk population to a broad-based population, then the incremental people that we're adding into the screening pool are mostly lower-risk people. And if you're a lower-risk person, then what happens when you're put into this pool is that you're prone to now becoming a false positive. So, you know, when, when, you, when, you, when a low-risk person comes in and tests positive, you are just like the high-risk person that comes in and tests positive. So then it generates a big cloud of false positives that will mix what we mix in with the true positives. And it's very difficult to now tell them apart. Okay, so I'm going to ask the naive question. How do you set the strata then? How do you know where to set it if you're not getting all these numbers? We often like to go by risk factors. That's right. By other right. So, so you would want to target the higher risk people. And then um, the math will allow you to know as you increase the level of targeting or, or decrease the level of targeting, um, it will have a trade-off between the false positives and the false negatives. So um, you, can, you can look at different settings and you can look at what the trade-off is and eventually somebody like these sort of people who set guidelines have to come out and suggest to us that this is the right trade-off. Right, so, yeah, so, so the point there being that if you have, you know, if we are putting in low-risk people, we're disproportionately adding false positives in relation to true positives to the pool of people that are testing positive. So it gets, it makes your jobs harder and harder. 
um, because now you have a lot of people with positive results that actually don't have the disease. And it's funny, I mean, we talk about false positives, false negatives all the time in medicine, obviously, any kind of screening test, any type of diagnostic test, all sorts of things. But from your point of view, which is definitely altogether unique, do you think we have a proper understanding and use our understanding of false negatives and false positives to guide our decision-making well, or do you think that there's some flawed thinking on our side? Well, I think in some of these cases, what what these cases expose is that it's a relatively complicated problem because people have trade off these two entities in a different way, right? Because, you know, I may value a false positive uh, uh, differently than how you may value it. So it really, as a society, we kind of need to have these discussions to kind of figure out where we land. Um, I think one thing that may not actually be um, well known out there is that even when we talk about false positive, false negatives, all those are, are sort of estimates. Because to really know that somebody is a false positive or a false negative implies that we already know what the true state of the patient is. And so, but we really don't. So they are all just estimates coming from certain experiments that allows us to, to roughly figure out what, what those rates are. And there are error bands around those rates too. So now you're just making it more complicated for me to practice medicine. Now I'm getting more insecure all the time after, after listening to this. Well, I think if, if we, well, if, if that's why, you know, we suggest going down the path of more targeting because that makes it you more secure because now there are fewer false positives within the positive pool. Isn't that better? Okay. All right, I want to switch gears for a minute because I'm getting kind of nervous here, all right? One of the things that fascinated me in your book, you talk about some comments on the statistics of placebos. Any thoughts about that? Because I've always been fascinated by that. You know, why have investigative committees deemed them too effective sometimes? I always look at these studies and see the effectiveness of the placebo. Yeah, it, it's a very uh, strange trend that's happening in the last year to a few years here. Um, you know, what what is definitively establishes that over uh, time, in the most recent period, pharmaceutical companies are developing new drugs are discovering that their drugs are uh, proving less and less powerful in, in tests where they are compared to placebo. So the difference between the new drug and the placebo has been decreasing over time. Um, so, you know, if, I, if this is one of my tests, that, that, that I run, um, you know, for marketing purpose, I would actually go try to understand why my marketing uh, strategies are not working. So, you know, in other words, you know, you would ask, you know, is there any way for us to develop drugs that are more potent? Um, there is a completely different um, track of research now where the drug companies are forming a consortium to go figure out why the placebo effect is so strong because they they say that the placebo effect has been increasing over time and that's something that um, needs to be understood. Yeah, pretty soon the placebo will be better than the medication. We can just sell the placebo with no side effects. Yeah, so it, it's, a, it, it's a little bit of an odd direction for the research to go um, because... Um, what what eventually they're trying to to find is that there could be um, some people who are 
Leica who are either naturally or genetically or whatever it is, for whatever reason, is likely to have higher placebo effects than other people. So they feel like if they could find the people who have lower placebo effects, then their drugs would therefore work more strongly on those people. All right. The name of your book is Numbers Rule Your World. You can find it by the green cover. Leave us with a thought about the future. Where are statisticians going to fit into this new medical world besides Twitter? (laughs) Well, I think one area where um, it looks like um, there will be plenty of activity in the near future is going to be that more attention being paid to these sort of post-marketing trials. Um, You know, these are clinical trials that are conducted after... Uh, a drug has already been approved and is being marketed, and typically these are billion-dollar drugs. Um, but if you have been paying attention to the news, like recently, whether it's the uh, concerning diabetes or cholesterol or some of these other um, sort of big diseases, um, many of these post-marketing trials have uh, seemingly have results that contradict uh the original clinical trials that approved the drugs. I mean, a lot of these things are now showing that they are not um, doing what they're supposed to do or they're not prolonging the lives of the people taking the drugs. And I think that, you know, as this type of evidence accumulates, you know, statisticians really have to come in and, and, and help figure out, you know, is there something wrong with our clinical trial designs or, you know, what else is happening that could... Um, lead to this kind of a discrepancy. Thank you. Our guest today has been Kaiser Fung, statistician and author of Numbers Rule Your World. Kaiser, thanks for being a guest on Second Opinion Live here on ReachMD, and you can come back and tell us numbers anytime you want. Thanks a lot. All right. <laughs> Thank you. That was interesting. I think we need. I need a statistician in my office now, besides a nurse and yeah. a front office staff. But I do think we need some sort of balance. I think that maybe next show we should have letters ruling your world and really just kind of focus on qualitative understanding of things. Right. Oh, I, We've I, hit the quantitative enough, I think. <laughs> all right. Now, enough with numbers. On to the ReachMD forum, Matt. Well, there's numbers in here, too. This week, a report <laughs> has added new controversy to a really painful old issue. This is a hot issue. According to an annual survey of physicians' salaries, medical centers are offering higher salaries, bigger numbers, once numbers, and incentives to some nurse specialties than to primary care doctors. The report has led some generalists to call themselves second-class citizens in the midst of a shrinking pool of primary care doctors. This is tricky. And I think we should make it clear that talking about this, we're not going to be examining nurses versus physicians. It's really not about that. But it does look into specialist versus generalist. And there are some interesting numbers here. Again, the specialty noted in this report was uh, CRNAs, or certified nurse anesthetists. And in 2009, primary care doctors were offered an average base salary of $173,000, while CRNAs were offered $186,000. And now it's interesting, I mean, CRNA salaries have trended upward as the number of surgical procedures has increased. And obviously, that's fueled a demand for anesthesiologists and anesthetists. But the opposite could be said for generalists. Yeah, and this is a really hot, interesting issue because we currently have a shortage of approximately 60,000 primary care doctors. And Mm -hmm. how are we going to attract young 
primary care doctors to go into this field, when they look at these numbers, I mean, when we were discussing this before the show, you said that one of the worst things you can ever do is to know somebody else's salary. It is one of the worst things you could know. It sticks with you. Yeah, because one of the things, how we judge ourselves and how much we're being paid and how mm-hmm. much we're offered, that's why value, we're worth $4 million dollars a show to the station here. That's what we get paid because it's such a you great You get paid $4 million. We have to have a chat after this yeah. show. <laughs> so, you know, when you know the star of the show is getting paid $2 million and not this show, and you're getting paid, you know, $100 it plays on your head. And so this is going to play on the head of primary care doctors. This is a problem. Yeah, it is one of those things you wish in many ways that you didn't know, but maybe it'll provoke something good that will come out of it. I mean, if you layer on top of it the potential Medicaid reimbursement cuts, I mean, it makes you wonder what's going to happen to the state of primary care if there's going to be some sort of open revolt. Yeah, well, for years we've been talking in medicine about that we need more primary care doctors, been trying to encourage more primary care doctors. And then when these kind of numbers come out and these kind of facts come out, it's really kind of disheartening. I mean, if I were a primary care doctor, I'd say, well, gee, I'll go back to nursing, you know, and I'll go become a specialist instead. Yeah, there's no incentive to be a generalist if the specialists are doing so much better than you. Right. Unfortunately, our world is ruled by money. And that's just the way it is and the way it's going to be. So we need to do something about this. And I think it's also important to remember for primary care doctors or people who want to go into primary care, Mm -hmm. to remember why we got into the profession in the first place. We got here to help people. We can't always look at the bottom line. And some of my best friends are pediatricians who are earning a lot less than this every year. And they're some of the happiest people I know. They are. are. So you you can't judge your specialty on how much you make. You have to follow your heart and choose your specialty that way. But I still think these numbers need to be looked at, and we need to establish who's worth what. Yeah, and it'd be nice if we didn't have to remind ourselves every day why we got into the profession. Uh, It'd be nice if there were some sort of value system that appreciated that better than what we're seeing here in these numbers. I'd like to remind ourselves how we got into this show. Every day, every That's time a I long come here, story. I have to remind ourselves. That is a long story, and I think that is about going to do it for us here on Second Opinion Live. we got to run because my BlackBerry is telling me the show's over, and who am I to disobey the smartphone? Thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And my iPhone is saying that for more about Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, visit our website at reachmd.com slash SOL. Feel free to give us a shout on Twitter, online, and on Facebook. You can follow us on your iPhone. Until next time, I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Thank you for joining us. Keep your radio dialed into ReachMDXM160. Thanks, Tony, for visiting us today. And once again, Haiti is not done.